Well, good morning. My name is Chris. I'm an elder and pastor here at Resonate. I'm glad you're with us. Uh, and so um, we are mid-series, uh, almost done. Next week will be our last week, uh, and dealing with some of the, the doubts, disillusionments, disorientation, a lot of stuff that has led a lot of people to sort of um, head down paths of deconstruction of their faith, head down paths of um, real struggle, uh, particularly over the last five or ten years. Uh, and so uh, we've been dealing with a number of topics uh, related to that. Really nothing's off limits uh, for us here at Resonate. We hope um, you, you've enjoyed that part of, of kind of how we've approached things. Uh, and if you have further questions, you're welcome to submit it. We won't deal with it um, next week, uh, but um, we're going to continue keeping that. We might do one-off podcasts or uh, maybe even do one of our classes where we continue to dive into a few of these subjects. Uh, today, I want to read through a few of the, the questions or, or topics that were submitted just to, to help frame why we're going down this route. Uh, biblical view of genders and roles, Christian patriarchy, complementarianism, uh, women leaders, what should be the role of women in the church? What does the Bible teach about that? How much of Paul's instruction on women's roles in the church should be seen as applying to that time and context versus the church today? What do we do with 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15, especially verse 15? Uh, why will churches send women overseas to be missionaries and preach the gospel, but their only role in Western churches is predominantly in children's ministry? And so we get um, a number of these um, loaded, complicated questions. And um, as with all things in this series, it's going to be a complicated, nuanced answer. And so um, let's, let's keep working. And I want to have a, a few opening comments about this. Hopefully, uh, we're a little more timely than the first service. Um, my experience in history, uh, I didn't, wasn't raised in the church. Uh, a good number of the jobs that I've had, actually probably e an easy majority, I think I've only had one male boss or two male bosses in all my jobs. Um, I've predominantly had women leadership over me. Um, my first uh, church world that I kind of stepped into, um, other than campus ministry, was the PCUSA Church, uh, which ordains women um, and has women in pastor leadership roles as elders. Um, and so that's been a lot of what I had encountered. And then at some point, uh, I started seeing differences of opinions on that and variety, and it made me really dive into what I think the scriptures say about that. And we're going to unpack uh, a number of the, 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 the scriptures about that today. Secondly, the other disclaimer, I guess, is that I am not a woman. Uh, so no surprise, um, I am a man. Uh, I highlight that because uh, it sometimes gets said that um, men shouldn't necessarily always address the topics around women themselves. And um, and the reason why, I, I totally understand too. What could be sort of an academic um, thing for me, it's not as personal per se, is a topic that also for women is incredibly personal and incredibly um, identity-driven around your own gender, your own biology, your own what you were born to be. And, and so um, it, it, I want to make sure I at least... Um, understand and respect uh, that view. So in preparation, uh, I wanted to make sure I listened to a number of women's voices. Uh, Sarah and I have talked a lot about the sermon as well, um, just to unpack uh, this topic as, as best as we can. But as a man, I still feel personal to it and directly relevant to me. Uh, as your pastor, I will be judged more strictly uh, for my life and my teaching than others. Uh, I embrace that with joy, but also with a lot of, uh, there's a certain weight to that. Uh, and I know if I mishandle or misteach anything in this word, like there's an accountability I, I will have to give for that. And so on an extremely difficult topic like this, uh, I want to do that with care. 
And lastly, I, I, I deeply desire to create an environment uh, here at Resonate and any church I'm at uh, where the women of the church can flourish, where my wife and my daughters can flourish and see women in leadership and women leading well um, according to the scriptures and what Christ has called them to be. And so, um, but let's frame this um, uh, there's sort of a, a spectrum of understandings on this topic. Um, here's a bit of a chart. It's very reduced, um, but uh, the, the, ten, the sort of extremes on both ends, uh, one is like a very traditionalist understanding of patriarchy, uh, where men sort of rule just about every facet of society, of the church, of the family. Um, the men make all the rules. The men make all the decisions. Um, there's very little conversation. Uh, the women's job is to stay home. The men's job is to work. Um, and uh, men lead the church without much input usually from women. Um, it's, it's, yeah, it is uh, that side of the spectrum. The other side um, is sort of this gender fluidity that uh, doesn't see men and women as having any distinctions at all. Uh, and if anything, the gender is just a construct anyway, so don't worry about it. Um, there's some pieces of maybe like third wave feminism and stuff within that camp as well. Today, we're going to kind of hover around sort of these two central camps. Uh, so I won't say a lot. We're, we're not for the, the extremes at all. Um, in case you haven't learned that so far at Resonate, uh, there's a lot of nuanced middle ground we like to, to sit in. And so um, this conversation will probably be a little bit of a back and forth of the egalitarian and complementarian positions uh, because on some level we uphold uh, things to be said about both positions. And so, um, yeah, to define those two, uh, the egalitarian position, uh, sort of in the church world. Uh, the, the, wor the word simply sort of re refers to equality, but in the church world, um, it often refers to churches that um, affirm el uh, women as elders uh, within the church, uh, women to teach in any sort of role anywhere uh, within the life of the church. Uh, the complementarian position, uh, which doesn't mean like compliment, like to say nice things about somebody else. Um, it doesn't mean like, hey, you look pretty today. That's not complementarian. Complementarian is sort of like complementary pieces of um, men and women uh, that, uh, as Melissa Kruger defines it, is sort of equal in worth and dignity, but different in how we live out our genders out in the world. Uh, that men and women are designed to complement each other, which at the end of the day, both those things I would hold true. Men and women are equal. We're egalitarian but also men and women are distinct in sort of how we're designed. And most egalitarians and complementarians would affirm both of those things uh, to begin with. Um, but complementarianism within the life of the church is often referred to as sort of the churches that um, would say eldership is, uh, according to scripture, reserved for men, um, and usually the, the formal teaching of the church is usually for the men as well. So uh, let's talk about the scriptures all related to this topic. And I'm not going to start with 1 Timothy 2 or Galatians 3, some of these really hot button verses to start, because I really want us to paint a picture of what God sort of says around the genders, and particularly around women uh, more than anything else. There are tons and tons and tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of resources out there to defend complementarianism from here's why men are the way they are all the time. I want to um, unpack what the Bible says around women uh, before we start dealing with a few of these tough verses. So, Genesis 1. Let's start from uh, the opening of the Bible. And hear me, the cultures all around, everywhere in the ancient world, are heavily, heavily patriarchal. Their stories, their origin stories, women are sort of afterthoughts or mistakes or secondary or um, all the ways the stories are told in the ancient world, women are very much second class, if not third class citizens, over and over and over and over again. 
So to open page one of the story of, of our God, and to hear, uh, let's start at verse 26. And then God said, let us make man, um, and that word really there is humanity because it will refer to them in plural in a second. Let us make humanity in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish and the sea and over the birds and over the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over all every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, and male and female, he created them. So right away, we sort of see the shared understanding that men and women themselves equally are the image bearers of God, which should, if we were an ancient person, blow our minds uh, more than it does, Uh, and also that they would share the mission of dominion over the earth. They are both commissioned to do so. It is not just Adam that gets that directive. They are both commissioned to have dominion over the earth and subdue it. So let's move into chapter two. Uh, we find God creating uh, what is ultimately an earthling. Let's uh, start verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. Now the word man there is not the same word that we're going to find later for man. Uh, there's a man and woman, which is Ish and Isha in Hebrew. This man is Adam, which is its corresponding part. It's not a female. It is, it is earth. And so one of the best ways to probably translate that word is earthling as opposed to man. Um, but the ESV has chosen man, which is fine. And the Lord God said, it's not good to make the earthling, or it's not, not good that the earthling should be alone. I will find a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird in heavens. And ultimately, God creates all these different uh, creatures uh, to find Adam uh, a corresponding part. Now, it's important to note that uh, Adam in the storyline is created first. Paul will pick up on that later in one of his letters. It's also important to note that everything is good in creation except one thing. And that is Adam is alone in what he's been tasked to do. And God is going to provide a helper fit, an Ezer Konegdo for Adam. And the Ezer, uh, the Ezer is a battle term. Uh, the word help or helper is probably a very, very weak word to translate these words. Uh, it's not an assistant. It is someone to come alongside Adam in the battle against an enemy. Azar is often associated with God more than any other character in Scripture. And it's usually in Israel's battles when they're losing, and God comes along as the Azar to help or to assist in the winning of the victory. It is a battle term. We like to soften the words related to women in Scripture, depending on your translation. Like Proverbs 31.10, woman of noble character who can find. Uh, the word noble there is the same word we use for David's mighty men and stuff like that. It's often a military term as well. Um, so um, a, a woman of, of mighty, of, of, of valor character who can find. So Azer, and then Konegdo, uh, which we talked about on the LGBTQ conversation, um, that there's a, a corresponding but different part. The Konegdo implies a, a difference, a, an opposite of, or a distinctly uh, other than uh, person. So Adam breaks out in song when Eve comes along and is created. He names her woman then, and he will name her Eve in chapter 3. Uh, now, historically, what Adam's doing by naming all the animals and ultimately in the naming of uh, his his um, wife um, would carry with it, at least in historical inter- interpretations, an understanding that there's some level of, of sort of authority that, that Adam would be connected to in the naming of things. That would be typically understood historically on why. That's why God gets to rename people. Um, there's, there's sort of the, the, the authority that is there in the naming. And then we move to Genesis 3, which is too bad that we can't just live there in Je- chapter 2. 
we get the, this interaction between Eve and the serpent. Uh, Adam is remarkably quiet in the whole scenario. Um, he's present. We will see that when uh, Eve immediately gives the fruit to his, her husband, uh, but he is silent. Eve does eat the fruit first, which once again Adam or Paul will pick up on. But what happens in the, in the finale to that scene um, when God shows up? Who does God address first? Adam. And so uh, even though Eve ate the, the fruit first, Lord come, comes along and says, Adam, basically the, called to the man and said to him, where are you? He didn't call to them. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. I hid myself. And he said, who told you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman who you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. So the initial sense of responding to the sin and brokenness of the world is actually to address Adam first, even though the storyline is pretty clear storytelling that, that Eve was the first to eat the fruit. And so right away there's some distinction in Adam's role and maybe responsibility related to his spouse. And then we get the, 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 the fallout of their sin. Genesis 3.16, these are the sort of the curses that come upon Adam and Eve or around Adam and Eve. Um, to the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Uh, we predominantly use the ESV here at the church, but there are times where I, I can't stand it. Um, this is one of those verses. Uh, just so you know. Uh, the ESV changed some of their wording just five years ago, so it's quite recent. Uh, and uh, the word contrary is just not in the Hebrew. And I think they're the only translator to use the word contrary here uh, for the translation. It's definitely reading theology into the verse. Um, and so the most clean, probably, translation, the NASB probably provides it. Uh, Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, let's talk about those terms. Uh, desire, which is teshukwa. Is desire a good or an evil thing? It's a trick question, right? It's, it can be whatever. Like, a desire can be a perfectly good thing, and desire can be an evil thing, right? Okay. Mashal, which is to rule or to have dominion over. Is that a, is that a good or an evil thing? Same thing, yeah, it totally depends. And it's, it's, they're neutral words. They're neutral words depending on the context of which they are given. Now, this is where all these translations get, in, in theological work, it's really complicated and convoluted. So does this mean that the woman, hey, the woman, you're going to have desires to usurp the power or authority of your husband, and his role is going to be to just exert the authority that he rightfully has? Does it mean, wives, you will have a desire for intimacy and, and to cultivate a good relationship with your husband, but out of sin, he's ultimately going to express sort of patriarchal dominion over you? Like, there are multiple ways to translate a verse like this or to um, interpret a verse like this. Um, I'll, I'll present the egalitarian way of often approaching, and I'm, I camp out on a few of these verses because these are like the hot-button verses. Uh, the egalitarian way of this is um, one of the options, uh, sort of as I mentioned. The Eve's punishment is actually similar to Adam's. Um, this is, hear me, it's arguing from context. It's arguing utilizing scripture. It's seeking to be faithful to the text. So I think too often the sort of complementarian egalitarian conversations turn into demonizing the other side. The complementarians assume that egalitarians aren't engaging in the Bible to actually come across their translations. And, and that's just bogus. And, and I think it's sometimes egalitarians just assume all complementarians just um, are, are trying to uphold patriarchy and are unwilling to uh, um, 
deal with the text on their terms too. And I, don't, I also don't think that's very true either. But uh, the egalitarian position would be according to God's curse on Adam, that Adam, um, Adam will try to do the right thing, which is to cultivate the ground, and ultimately Adam will be missed with, uh, dealt with with resistance, which will be the ground sort of becoming really hard for Adam to cultivate. In the same way, since Eve is parallel to that, that Eve will desire for her husband. She will have the right understanding to cultivate a relationship, just like Adam would cultivate the ground, but she will be mis- met with um, the sort of domineering resistance of her husband to uphold sort of a, a very patriarchal understanding. Right? See how that goes. It's using the Bible, it's using context to make that argument. Complementarians uh, continue to interpret this a uh, different way, looking at sort of the words in their context and how they are used, particularly in nearby texts. So if you would look in Genesis, how Genesis also uses those words. In the very next chapter, and chapter breaks are artificial to begin with, I hope you know that. So in a few paragraphs later, the word for desire and rule get utilized again. Both those words, uh, Genesis 4-7. So this is uh, Cain uh, when he really desires to kill his brother. God says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is, and once again, the ESV throws contrary in there, is for you, but you must rule over it. So here is desire a good thing. No, it's immediately associated with what sin does. This is what sin does. It desires people. And Cain must rightfully rule over it. It's sort of the good here. And so complementarians will jump here saying, hey, we immediately get these two verses kind of paralleled again, right? And, and like almost the same phrasing where desire is ultimately a wicked thing and the ruling is ultimately the good thing. So that would be the complementarian understanding of that as well. Uh, just no surprise to most people, I tend to sit nuanced between these two camps. Uh, I think the outworking of the fall is that the relationship of men and women has been severed. There's, they were designed to be co-laborers as men and women, as one flesh, uh, as husband and wife. And the fall has brought sort of um, disordered desires into the fold. And that includes power dynamics of ruling and reigning, which is part of what they were called to do is to rule and to reign. And the play out really becomes the extremes. It becomes patriarchy. It becomes sort of the third wave feminism, sort of uh, women rule the world kind of understanding of things. That women will try, try to take on a role designed um, that does not recognize any distinction in men, and then men will misuse their power and rule over women in ways that they are not designed to as well. Basically, they will all want to be God. Um, they all wanted to be God, and now we're all going to kind of function and play God against each other in a relationship with each other. That would be how I would tend to read the text. There's a lot of other interpretations of that as well. God will continue to do work. He'll do work through patriarchs. Uh, it is important to note that he does set his covenant with the patriarchs and the storyline. But at the same time, the women are upheld in the storyline. Uh, uh, the, the patriarchs are kind of doofuses at times. Uh, let's just be real about that, too. Um, they, they are screwing up all the time when we sort of actually see uh, the dignity of the wives or the mothers upheld quite a bit. They're not perfect. Like Sarai is not perfect. But they are upheld almost more than their husbands at times. Uh, we get... Uh, the Israelites cross the Red Sea. Uh, we are introduced during that storyline to uh, Moses' sister Miriam. She helps lead Israel in worship. Uh, she's identified as a prophet and prophesies through the storyline. 
Uh, but we also get the priesthood, uh, which uh, the priesthood for Israel, priests, uh, they were called to be a nation of priests, but they also still had a priesthood, uh, this sort of representative group to do tabernacle work. They represented God to the people and people to God. They're intermediaries. And as far as we could tell, they were exclusively men. We get someone like Deborah. When Israel finally enters the, private, the promised land, God doesn't desire kings to necessarily rule the people, but they have sort of tribe leadership as tribes as conflicts happened, they would have judges ultimately to rule over Israel at the time. They were appointed by God. The spirit would come upon them. They would prophesy, decide disputes, kick out foreign enemies, and lead the people in covenant loyalty so that they can experience peace. And Deborah is held up as a good judge in Israel's history. And, and the way the book is structured, it's, Deborah is held up as one of the prime leaders of Israel during that time period. Um, and she would work alongside a man like Barak, who's a, more of a military guy. And it's, a peer, it's, to me, the clearest example of authoritative leadership in the Old Testament of a woman uh, to lead, direct, and guide uh, the people of Israel. We see the kingdom of Israel. Uh, they eventually do become uh, a kingship with a king. Uh, and as far as we can tell from their history, the kings, particularly God's appointed kings, uh, were always men. Um, of course, all kings are men. But we don't see a queen uh, in Israel's history uh, other than one that tried to usurp the throne. So you wouldn't really want to hold it up as the ideal of um, a queen in history. Uh, we get um, women who are directing their cities to ultimately overthrow somebody's head over the wall, but this woman um, has tremendous influence over the people in the right way, and they listen to her. You get Hulda, which uh, you end up in Israel's history with a divided kingdom. Uh, you eventually get this good guy named Josiah coming along, good king in Second Kings 22, uh, and he wants the people to come back to the covenant faithfulness. And when he does that, they're like, hey, we really want to listen to, to, to a, one of the prophets. And they have options of prophets, but they choose Hulda, the single woman, to be the prophet for Josiah to listen to. And she relays what God has said, and ultimately the king listens to what Hulda says and enacts what Hulda has entrusted her, uh, has, God has spoken through her. We get Esther, who ends up, um, this storyline is a beautiful picture of men and women working together in scripture. We get Esther, who uh, ends up sort of the queen in sort of the Persian kingdom during when Israel's kind of... Um, they'd been in captivity. There were definitely Israelites left over in Persia. Uh, she, she gets elevated to a position of authority for all sorts of reasons. Um, and she works alongside her uncle Mordecai that to basically overthrow the laws that are going to lead to the killing of her people. She, she's, a person, she's a woman of power, influence, and elevated just for a certain time and a place so that God can do what he's going to do. There's various other women in the Old Testament. Hagar, um, who's the first person to meet the angel of the Lord. Sarah, Sarah Sephora, who keeps covenants, protects Moses from God's justice. Um, there's ministry women outside the tabernacle. There's women who help change the laws of the land. There's Rahab, um, who hides spies and saves the family. There's Asha, who inherits land. Yale, an agent of God's judgment by driving a tent peg into someone's head, uh, which is a cool story. Uh, Samson's mom, um, who speaks to the angel, angel of the Lord. You get someone like Ruth. Uh, there's a whole book in the Bible who the main characters are women. Like Boaz is a bit of an afterthought of the storyline. It is about Ruth and Naomi. And we have a whole book in the Bible dedicated to that, elevating women. <clears throat> uh, Hannah who makes a vow without her husband and gets prophetic prayer. Uh, Shira um, builds multiple cities. Abigail uh, negotiates peace agreements, Lady Wisdom. God's personified wisdom itself is a female in the storyline. So a couple questions. Coming out of the Old Testament, does God design women to lead according to the Old Testament? Yes. Does God design women to teach men and women in sort of mixed companies? Yes. 
We see it both times and multiple times in Scripture that, that, that women would be teaching and leading and speaking prophetic words to both men and women. Does God desire men and women leading together? Yes, we see that time and time again. Do there appear to be some roles of leadership that are uniquely men in the history of Israel? Yes, we see that as well. Okay, let's jump to the New Testament. And remember, Jesus is entering a pretty heavily patriarchal society. They are still praying. Well, they prayed, and they still pray uh, 2,000 years later. Uh, there's a daily prayer for the men that says, Blessed art thou, O God, for not making me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. And so the, um, even the temple design, the court of women and stuff like that, the separation of women, uh, was not necessarily part of the instructions of the temple. Other than the priestly areas, everybody that was a Jew should have been allowed in all the areas, but they separated out a court of women. <clears throat> in the life of Jesus, uh, women were involved in his ministry. Uh, so in his birth, uh, we find women prophesying all over his birth stories. If you look at the book of Luke, uh, Luke introduces two sort of pairs of people, uh, two that are married and two that don't seem to be, I think. Um, and all the women in all that story are highlighted. Um, their prophetic word is like the main point of the storyline for Luke. Uh, the men are sort of a little bit afterthoughts in sort of the, how the stories are told. Uh, various women who are followers of Jesus, who are disciples of Jesus, uh, they provide for his ministry, like in Luke 8. There are those who confess Jesus as Messiah, like the Samaritan woman and Martha, uh, the Samaritan woman. Um, Jesus has this interaction with her. They talk about texts and the meaning of those texts and worship and where worship should happen. They talk about living water, and Jesus reveals himself as Messiah and commissions and empowers her to go and proclaim the good news to her people. She becomes like one of the first evangelist in scripture. Um, Mary Bethany, who sat at Jesus' feet, uh, which at the time would have been not a euphemism because it's not doing something, making something better, but um, a sort of phrase, um, an idiom uh, around what it means to be a disciple. So she might have been literally sitting at her feet, but it was such a used phrase in the first century world that it's likely referring to her as a disciple herself. That's why Martha is so bothered by Mary's actions. Um, it's not that Mary won't help her in the kitchen or anything like that. It's that Mary is functioning as men would in their society by being a disciple at Jesus' feet. Uh, but we do watch Jesus as well choose 12 men to be his designated disciples. Um, now, yes, there's a theological counterpart. He had 12 tribes. He's choosing 12 men, sort of a correlation of those tribes. But this also would have been a, a beautiful moment for Jesus to appoint some women to also be representative as well. But it does not seem to, that he at least did that in the storyline. In the death of Jesus, women, once again, are highlighted. Uh, Mary Magdalene and some other of the women are the first to visit the tomb. They're greeted by angels. They saw the resurrected Lord. They went home. Mary Magdalene herself is commissioned by Jesus himself to tell the disciples of the risen Christ. She is sent, which is the word we use for apostles. She is sent to the disciples to preach it. N.T. Wright says this. Jesus does not say, Mary, I've got some important news, and I want you to go get Peter because I need to tell him so that he can go tell everybody else. Instead, he says, Mary, go tell your brothers, those men who are hiding at home because they're scared, go and tell them, I am ascending to my father and your father. And the news of the crucified Jesus, who has been raised from the dead and is now Lord of the world, is the foundation of all Christian ministry to begin with. The writes says, arguing for the passage's significance to Christian thought and belief. He goes on to say that when Jesus gives this news to Mary instead of one of his male disciples, it's almost as huge of a revolution as the resurrection itself. That women were the ones who brought the good news of Jesus' resurrection to disciples, taught the men what Jesus had just told them. The greatest event in the history of the world and the greatest event in scripture to take place and God chooses women to reveal it all to them. 
And for a culture where women's witnesses was not even legal uh, in court or viable evidence, this moment breaks apart all sorts of stereotypes. Uh, we see the birth of the church uh, when uh, the early disciples are gathered uh, together at Pentecost. Um, it is not just the 12 disciples, or 11 plus one disciples, uh, that, the, that the Holy Spirit falls upon in the storyline. Uh, from the context of chapter one into chapter two, it is men and women. The spirit-infused birth of the New Testament church was men and women. We find the early church. We find folks like Priscilla, who worked together with Paul and um, uh, helped disciple someone named Apollos, who becomes a, a great church leader, uh, and they work together to teach them what the Bible actually says about Jesus. We find someone like Phoebe uh, in Acts 16, who's referred to um, as a servant in the ESV, but the same word gets translated as deacon all over the place. And so um, she perhaps was a deacon in the church, uh, in, in the early church. And Paul says, hold her in high regard and does not mention a spouse in her role. So it's not just husband and wives are the only ones leading together. Uh, as far as we know, she didn't have a husband. Uh, Junia, uh, Romans 16, 7, uh, we, we get introduced to this character named Junia, who uh, th- it says uh, about her and Andronicus that they are well known to the apostles. Now, that can mean two different things, right? Uh, it could mean that they were, um, or, or most literally, it's uh, the ones who are note among the apostles. Now, that could mean that they are well-known to the apostles, but that could also mean that they are well-known as apostles. And so um, some, some camps, the more egalitarian camps, would say maybe Junio is a first-century apostle, um, and complementarian camps tend to breed into that, too, of going, or oh, maybe it's just he's, she's well-known to the apostles. Uh, Lydia, who is the first believer in Europe, she hosts the, house, uh, the church in her house um, because she uh, seems like a fairly wealthy woman who has uh, the ability to do that and is extremely hospitable and willing to um, make the church plant in her home. Uh, women participate in the life of the church for their missionary work, carrying, life of the letters, uh, carrying letters from the apostles, serving as deaconesses, hosting house churches, providing both financial assistance and shelter, traveling apostles and missionaries and Jesus himself. Exercising spiritual gifts of prophecy, not to mention playing a vital role in their own homes with, um, with husbands and children. The New Testament presents a picture that women believers prayed, um, played an important role in actively supporting and um, contributing to the mission of the church. It's time and time and time and time and time again in New Testament. In a way, once again, in its cultural context, would be usurping so much cultural norms to talk about the women as it does in Scripture. It just is, whether Jewish norms or Roman, uh, Greco-Roman norms, the, the way the Bible elevates women is to bring them on equal standing with the men of Scripture. It just is. And we're comfortable with that. But let's look at the, some disputed texts to say, does that play out everywhere at all times and in every way? Galatians 3. Uh, this tends to be a, a scripture used in the more egalitarian sense. Let's look at it. Verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Uh, This text is often cited by egalitarians, as I said, showing God has broken hierarchical structures. Um, The difficulty of this is the context of the letter of Galatians. Uh, Paul's main thrust by the time he gets here 
is speaking to a church that's very divided over insiders, the, the sort of Jewish people at the time who feel like they are the only heirs to what Abraham has, was promised, uh, that, that Yahweh is exclusively theirs per se. Uh, there are Gentiles who are trying to break that mold and there seems to be some disagreement on who actually is part of God's kingdom, who are heirs of the promises of God. And so Paul's making an argument saying, no, like, you being a Jew or you being a Gentile doesn't keep you from the inheritance that God actually has. It is not a commentary on, st- on structures within the church. That's just not what the verse is being used for. Um, it's pulling it out of context uh, to try to make it be that. Um, it's a great verse. It's a wonderful verse. But it's not trying to argue about the hierarchy or leadership of the church. It's just not the context that's being used. Um, so, is there hierarchy in the church? What are those pieces of the church? Who does lead the church? Um, we see from, from page two of the book of Acts that the church gathered. They had prayer, communion, fellowship, the teaching of the apostles. As far as we could tell, other than the one disputed verse in Romans, there's no indication that necessarily any of the women had uh, what would be called the more formal role of apostle. Uh, Paul, Paul speaks of his... Um, uh, authority related to his role as an apostle. <clears throat> so who all could be the, the teachers of the church or the preachers within the life of the church? As already noted, women can prophesy, uh, and they prophesied even in gathered settings. We see that in 1 Corinthians 11, amongst other places. But once again, that's not the same thing as preaching. Uh, prophecy tends to be I, uh, understood. This isn't a sermon on prophecy, but as a Holy Spirit-prompted way um, that the speaking might happen in the church. So it's hardly sort of regular preparations needed kind of practices in the life of the church. Women and men are instructed within the life of the church to cheat each other. Uh, Colossians 3.16, it's instructions to the church at large, men and women gather together, and it says teach each other. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, They're given the whole instruction of the church. Now, it's unlikely that that means everybody in the church should always do a more formal teaching because guess what? Like Some of you would probably teach some pretty heretical things if we just go, hey, teach the church. Um, That's not uh, the expectation. So can women teach in the life of the church? Yes. Can women prophesy in the life of the church? Yes. Even though we got to define prophecy, but we're not going to right now. What do we do with a couple of other texts? First Timothy 2. Here's, now we're getting to the, the two big controversial ones. I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for men who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly in all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, um, it seems like, uh, I haven't looked in every scholar, but um, a lot of scholars think that what Timothy is addressing is a sense of a gathered um, church context. That's why there'll be instructions on prayer, there'll be instructions on attire, there'll be instructions on learning and what do learning environments look like, and we are immediately going to move into the officers of the church in the very next chapter. And so this is about conduct, uh, conduct in the life of the church. And it raises a couple questions whenever you deal with any letter, is what is the backdrop? What's going on culturally? That should be asked of every book in the Bible. Um, 
the letter to Timothy is written to Timothy, uh, from Paul to Timothy. Um, he's trying to be a pastor in a city of Ephesus with a church plant in Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus is the home of Artemis worship. Uh, women would have had a very significant role in the temple practices in the city, including speaking in the temple worship. And so that was pretty normative. So the egalitarian argument on a text like this is that the church in Ephesus, where Timothy's pastoring, was plagued by false teaching, and that this false teaching was coming primarily from a, from a collection of women in the church who might be usurping or teaching wrong doctrine around creation, around sin, uh, around Adam and Eve themselves. And if this is the case, then yes, then we must see this passage as not precluding women from all forms of teaching, but a direct prohibition in their cultural context that women in the church in Ephesus were not to be teaching because they were struggling with being false teachers. Now, the difficulty I have with a bit of this position um, is that Paul elsewhere deals with false teaching, and he just calls it false teaching. He goes, hey, and if he just says here in this same letter, hey, um, there's false teaching going on around Adam and Eve and birth order, so we, we want good doctrine. That, that would be the right response, not to go, therefore, all women should not teach in this setting. That, that would be sort of an overshoot, because we see that elsewhere. We, most Gnostic heresies was carried on by a bunch of men that came into the church. Paul's instruction then was, all men should dare not, not church, not speak. No, it would be, look, this is a heresy, and we need to correct this in this way. And, and so um, it seems like it's a bit of a reach to say that, that what Paul is answering here is a cultural false teaching dynamic of the women in the church. Um, and perhaps they were taking on more authority than they should, uh, which would be part of that argument. So there's two words, uh, to teach, to dasco, uh, to exercise authority, which is authentic, um, and which is already troubling as I kind of talked about with the LGBT stuff. It's not a word that's super common in scripture. Uh, but a lot of commentators th uh, think that these words are sort of attached as if it's sort of like authoritative teaching, um, that there's a kind of teaching that's being spoken of here that's different than wholesale understanding of teaching. Um, there's a specific kind of teaching that, uh, according to the context, might be connected more to the role of an elder. Uh, whose qualifications we will get to just a couple of verses right after this, um, that Paul's rationale here is not to appeal to culture. Because Paul could say, look, learning all submissiveness, I know the Temple of Artemis has their thing going on, but here we're doing what is Christian. But it, this is not what he says. And, in, and for his very argument, what he does is move into the creation order of things. And not the end of Genesis 3, he moves into Genesis 2 to make his arguments around whatever this authoritative teaching is. And so what he does is he'll speak about Adam and Eve, their creation order, um, and God's ordering of the world related to whatever this authoritative teaching is. And so because of this emphasis on authority and teaching, particularly in the context of gathered worship and the connection to the qualifications of elders, um, and it makes it difficult to uh, sort of understand the full extent of what Paul is dealing with. But we believe that there's a form of authoritative teaching that Paul is prohibiting women from doing in the context of the gathered church. Now, as the practice existed in the first century, so the synagogue practice would be everybody would get together, uh, there would be a rabbi who would come in with a certain authority, that's why Jesus is all, people are always having a problem with Jesus' authority, come in, speak, uh, because they had a certain role within the life of Israel. Um, and, and so it seemed like uh, the early church actually followed that same practice, that's why they have the apostles' teaching as part of the early church practices. Um, and the argument might be that um, the elders would eventually become sort of that role within the life of the early church. 
We'll deal with Corinthians in a second. A quick note on the childbearing line, since it was specifically asked. Uh, It says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing. Now hear me. That verse is not an instruction to say that women's main role is motherhood and bearing children and staying home and cooking and cleaning and all that kind of stuff. That's just not the verse, right? Because it says, yet she will be saved through childbearing. She, singular. Who are we talking about? Who do we just hear about? Right? Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam will not be deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she, Eve, in the storyline, will be saved or childbearing. After the fall, which is the context of what Paul's talking about, what is Eve promised? That through her progeny, through her seed, through her offspring, one will come who will do what? He will reverse the curse in a way. He will crush the serpent. And so what, what all that Paul is ultimately saying is, look, she, it, yes, there was the fall. And, and related to the circumstances of the fall, there's something related to men and women's ordering. But this has nothing to do with who should be staying home and having children and stuff like that. Okay? It's a misapplication of that verse to try to make that argument. All right, let's keep going. 1 Corinthians 14. We'll start at verse 33. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. And once again, we get strong language from Paul on the instruction to women. And it's a large section uh, from chapters really 10 or 11 until 14. And a lot of it is about sort of the church gathered. It's messy. There's a lot in there. It's actually quite a a complicated section to interpret. Um, It's just hard to understand what's going on. But Paul does start this sentence by speaking of saying, in all the churches of the saints, women should keep silent in the churches. And so it's not, we can't do the same thing we, we might do with Timothy, where it says, look, this is just a problem in Ephesus. He does give a more universal statement here. And there's some particular part of their gathering, some particular part of their services, whatever we want to call it, where a certain design of what's going on should fall to the responsibility of men instead of um, necessarily the women. And maybe as we would understand it, a, a particular set of, of men. We don't get a lot of instructions on what the gathered church looks like uh, throughout any of the New Testament, but we do get moments where Paul speaks of a certain portion, certain part of, of something. And, and between Timothy and Corinth, there's something where he's like, no, that, that's just not the design of this. And we would uh, understand what that something is. It's not necessarily prayer or prophesying or singing or encouragement, all things that feel open-ended in terms of gender. But there's some designated time that would be correlated to the apostles' teaching that we would um, connect ultimately to the elders in the church um, who also we would uh, interpret as men. That through Acts, through 1 Timothy, through 1 Peter, through Titus, the church has an office that we call elder that provides shepherding guidance for the church, provides protection, teaching, nurturing of the local community. They're instructed to watch over the church. They provide some sort of leadership within the life of the church. And coming straight out the instructions of 1 Timothy 2, we see the qualifications. And hear me, they are extremely character-heavy more than they are competency-heavy. Like, this is not to say they're the best teachers in the church, right? Like, Sarah is probably the best teacher in our church. Like, we could say amen to that. That's a great thing. And so, but it is characters and characteristics that are given of the men who are called into this role of eldership. 
Um, but it also, also speaks, it says um, in verse 2, the husband of one wife, that he must manage, uh, verse 4, he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. I mean, if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how do we care for the God's church? And so what Paul's doing is taking analogous concepts. And we're not diving into the whole marriage piece on the sort of complementarian conversation. That's another sermon for another day. But um, Paul speaks also sort of around men in their households and then uh, transfers that to his understanding of the church. Now, once again, good questions coming out of the New Testament. Does God design women to lead? Yes. Does God design women to teach men and women? Yes. Does God around men and women leading together? Does God want men and women leading together in complementary ways? Yes. Do they appear to be some roles within the leadership that are uniquely men in the early church? And we would say here at Resonate, yes. We know churches disagree with us. And that's great. It's wonderfully open-handed. Uh, it's still important. So don't hear me be dismissive, but very open-handed uh, conversations. Now, is it amb- ambiguous about how all that plays out? Yes. It just is. So where does this leave me before uh, I invite Sarah up here to help us unpack some of the nuts and bolts and important pieces? Let me be clear. This is hardly clear. Okay? (laughs) We've done a quick flyer over the Bible. There are scriptural faithful arguments on each side and exactly how it plays out. And to demonize one side and accuse them to not take the Bible seriously or to just use the culture to argue their points, I'd say it's just ludicrous. It's just not real. And I can stand here, and I think it's probably a more faithful world to live in to say, you know what, I'm like 60% certain this way. And because of that, we have certain things we do here. But to say I am 100%, when I hear sometimes the phrase, the Bible clearly says, I just want to stop listening. Because um, there are not a lot of things where the Bible has a whole lot of like clearly 100%. It says this one thing. It's just the way things are. We desire to be as egalitarian of a complementarian church as we can possibly be within the confines of biblical interpretation. Women, you have been given the same gifts of the Spirit that all men have too. Like, 1 Corinthians does not speak of only men get a certain gift and the women get another gift. It does not speak that way at all. So hear me. That includes gifts like teaching and leading amongst the many gifts. So if Deborah and Holda were partners in this church... You better believe that we would be finding a way to place them and to exercise their gifting of prophecy and leadership. And if we don't do that, we're not doing our jobs as a church. This has been a learning process. This has not been easy. We've been learning how to create opportunities, learning how to empower women, learning how to add another seat at the table of leadership. And we have not always killed it, but we are learning. And if it is not good for man to be alone in the garden, it is still not good for any areas of leadership in men to be devoid of women participating in those areas. Like, there's no instructions on what elder meetings should look like in Scripture. They just aren't. And so we're trying to figure out, all right, what does that look like? How to have women at the table? How do we have those conversations? One way I like to think about it, um, if one of the uh, metaphors we get for elders is that they're like fathers, well, what should we see then? That's the question I want to ask. If, if I'm making a decision with, in, about my family, what do you think I would do? I would consult my wife. We're going to talk about these decisions. We're going to do those together because we are a team. She's going to have a different perspective on things, a different position than I would on things. And I think the same should be true in the life of the church. If we are going to have elders as the fathers of the church, you best believe we've got to figure out how to have mothers who are in the church participate in the leadership decisions of the church. 
And perhaps there's still a sense of deferral to the final decision to the elders, but we want to be partners and co-laborers in that process as God has designed men and women to be from the beginning. So I want to invite Sarah up. Um, we'll see how this goes this time. I think we have a little bit more time than last time. Um, not much, though. <laughs> a little bit. Uh, Sarah serves as our executive director. Um, she has had to navigate this conversation her whole life, but uh, here at Resonate, her whole time here. Um, and so we want to talk about a few of the nuts and bolts, maybe, how this happens. I want to talk about her, her own personal experience as well. Uh, I wanted her to have this opportunity uh, in the life of the church. So let's, let's get a little nuts and bolts. What are some ways that you've seen this play out in our systems and structures here at Resonate? There's a few different ways. Specifically, I think one of the big things to highlight is our leadership team. So we have a leadership team that is comprised of elders and then a few people, men and women, who we would call the executive leadership team. Our leadership team, we gather monthly and we communicate frequently around areas of big picture church vision and strategy. We make decisions together around theological and strategic and discipleship-oriented issues. Sometimes we will vote together on the resolution of something, and other times just the elders will vote depending on the issue at hand. But our leadership team is a really key piece that we do that with. Yeah, and uh, I also want to say, um, within sort of the circles that we tend to run in, and particularly complementarian circles, uh, it's not common for uh, Sarah to be in the role uh, of executive director in a lot of the, the churches. Um, in a number of the churches, she would be called executive pastor. Um, and uh, the way Sarah and I interact quite a bit uh, is much more as a team. Uh, we talk through sermons. I talk through her, my sermons with her more than I do anybody else in the church. Uh, we both work as sounding boards with each other. Actually, my kids uh, asked me uh, maybe last year or so, so does Sarah run the church? Um, <laughs> and so... Um, because we talk through so much, and, and I trust her to, to lead as she, she does in incredible ways. Um, and she's, she was hired because she was the best person for the job. Um, it's a bonus. It's a wonderful bonus that she's a woman. But she was just the best person for the job. And that's, that's the qualifications that she brought to the table. Um, yeah. So a couple other nuts and bolts sort of things is we provide classes and teaching opportunities for both men and women. We have co-ed life group leadership. Uh, A lot of churches don't see women leading discussion groups or overseeing a life group when it's mixed gender. So that's something we offer. And then outside of eldership in the pulpit, we really define roles based on gifting and margin and capacity more than specifically the gender or things like that. And then the last thing, and this is really a blessing to having just a female in the role that I am in, is that I have a pulse on a lot of women in the church, and I'm able to identify and help develop women within leadership or discipleship giftings in the church. And these are women that the elders may not necessarily have a pulse on or a touch point on because it's either not their wives or not women that they are in close relationship with. While our elder wives are awesome, they are great. Um, We cannot expect that they specifically have the gifting and the call that their husbands have, Uh, but there are women within our church who are not the wives of elders who do have a gifting and a call towards leadership and discipleship and within ministry. And so we need to faithfully make sure that we are raising them up as well and giving them voice and valuing their contribution to the church. Yeah. So how would you encourage women who have giftings, particularly around leadership, but, but various giftings, but navigating co-ed spaces can come with maybe past hurt or maybe sometimes the, the stereotypes of, of stronger women, of being 
bossy, demanding, or pushy, where those things can be weaponized against them. What encouragement would you give to women who want to step in and step up? Yeah, um, that's a good question. It's a hard question to answer, and so I want to start it just by saying that it's really important to be sure that that you're called to this. The call to to ministry in general and the call specifically to church ministry is a heavy call, and there's a lot of sacrifice that's made. So I'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit, but understand what I'm saying comes with with the understanding that I'm called to this, and that's why I'm here. Um, but the first thing I would challenge a woman, and really this, this applies to men too, to consider as you pursue using your gifts within the church is why? Why are you pursuing this and whose glory are you seeking? It would be really easy for me in my role to pursue prominence and to feel satisfied and valued for my sake in what I do. But that pursuit is misaligned and it's going to lead me to disappointment because I'm seeking my own glory instead of that of God's. You know, in the book of Colossians, Paul talks a lot about his conviction and his heart to present people mature in Christ, proclaiming him to everyone, encouraging them, struggling in prayer that we may present those who are mature in Christ. And so unless you are seeking the maturing and the building up of the body of Christ as primary and your own kind of prominence as secondary, you're going to be disappointed in your call and obedience to ministry. And secondly, I think, especially as women, I mean, again, this is true for all people, but I'm speaking to women here is that we must entrust our gifts and our future to God and not specific roles or titles or validation of what we are to do. Psalm 138.8 says, The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. And that's a good reminder. We do not need a specific circumstance or specific authority or specific titles for God to fulfill his purpose through us. And we can also be assured that God's purpose is not going to be thwarted by men or theological convictions or church leadership. God fulfills his purpose for us and God alone. And then another one is to seek to serve, lean in, ask questions, say yes, even if you're not entirely sure you have what it takes. It's a common statistic maybe many of us have heard is that uh, women will not apply for a promotion at work unless they feel like they are 100% qualified, uh, but men only need to feel 60% qualified to apply for a promotion. So imposter syndrome is a real thing, but I'd encourage you as a woman, if you think you may have a gifting or if you're curious about this, lean in and try it out. Don't feel like you have to have it all together. Early on in my leadership in this role, I had someone encourage me to operate out of the authority that God has given me, not the authority I feel like I have. And that was a real game changer for me. You know, there are pathways for us here at Resonate Church, and we are continuing to build pathways to give space and utilize and help people grow in the gifts that they have. Uh, We are intentional to include women in every area of leadership we can. Like we already talked about, uh, life groups, we see women serving communion, you see women serving in our kids, and even in our teaching ministries here at the church. And then the last thing, and this is really key and probably the most important, is to keep a very tender heart before the Lord. You have to remember to keep the main thing the main thing, which is the glory of God and salvation of souls. That's why we're here. Women will be overlooked. (laughs) You will be forgotten, and you probably will be hurt. But we are to keep short accounts with one another. We are to offer forgiveness freely in the same way that forgiveness is freely offered to us through Christ. In the same way that I am still in process, I am still being sanctified and conformed to the image of Christ, I must understand that those I serve with are also still in process. I cannot expect or demand our leadership to have arrived in these certain areas if I have not yet arrived. We are to sharpen one another in faith, pointing one another toward Jesus, and that almost always involves getting hurt and then forgiving freely and quickly. 
But the enemy will see this and the enemy will jump on it, trying to sow seeds of bitterness and resentment. Take those thoughts captive over and over and over again. You cannot, if you cannot lead without resentment, if things aren't going how you want them to go, then you probably should step away for leadership, from leadership for a time because resentment and bitterness will destroy the unity of the church. And that is God's heart, is unity and brothers and sisters serving together even though we do it imperfectly. Yeah, picking up on a few of the things you said. So navigating some of this space has come with some cost for you um, and there's risk involved. Um, you want to talk about some of that, what you've experienced and also sort of uh, hope in midst of that, yeah. Yeah, um, this is. It feels kind of funny to stand up here and talk about it. It's a pretty personal raw issue for me, but I hope it's edifying for you. Um, it's it's challenging serving as a woman in the church in in this kind of executive leadership role. Uh, one other thing is that my gender will always be considered above my gifts. You know, if you take a person and this person loves to study the Bible and really loves to teach others the Bible, this person is good at one-on-ones or gifted at one-on-ones with people, discipleship, and feels a full-time call to the ministry, you'd be excited about it. And if that person is a man, what do you do? You give him a church to pastor. And if it's a woman, you think, oh, we're not really sure where to put you. Like maybe if we're a big church, you can run our women's ministry or our children's ministry. But we have to come up with some theological convictions around what you can do that's different. My gender impacts where I can serve and what it looks like for me to serve. Um, There have been some significant costs for me in this role, which again is why I emphasize the importance of the call. Uh, There's a cost to me to be on the front lines of some of the change that's happening within the church. I am so grateful to be in the rooms and in the conversations, those frontline conversations, along with Katie White on our executive leadership team and some others. Uh, But being the first person in that room also means that I oftentimes get sort of the subconscious bias and processing as our leaders are working through their own convictions and thoughts around these things. There are things that have been said that have been so hurtful and so insensitive, not intentionally, but part of me being in this role means I absorb those things so others don't have to. I am often overlooked in my position. There is no structured support system for me as a woman in executive leadership here, though the elders have one another. And there's also no practical resources for me in the operational decisions I'm making as the executive director at the church. I don't have a group of other executive leaders to connect with in Acts 29 because I don't know anyone else in my job in Acts 29. The men in Acts 29, I know I'm generalizing here, but they have not been responsive to me, nor have they been interested in interacting with me. You know, a couple years ago, I reached out to one to talk about groups, and he wouldn't meet with me alone. Another time, I emailed someone to ask about some HR stuff, and he emailed Chris back instead of me. Um, I'm assumed, in most cases, to be someone's wife or our women's and children's director. And while some very dismissive things have been said to me, the general sentiment that I get in these places is that I am not seen or acknowledged I'm not looked at, I'm not greeted, and I'm not spoken to, and I'm treated as a non-contributor in complementarian environments. And there's this navigating of double standards that I live in a lot of times. You know, when we were interviewing for our life group and outreach, um, or our life group and connections director, one of the first questions we had to ask everyone was, are you willing to be alone with a woman, and are you willing to be managed by a woman? You know, we wouldn't have had to ask that if it was a man interviewing a woman. Only one of us has ever been criticized for wearing jeans to church on a Sunday. I bet you can guess who that is. Um, 
Early on in my position, I didn't say this earlier, but Chris had me say it, so I'll say it this time. Early on in my position, Chris and I had an Acts 29 pastor come up to us, and when he found out my position, he said, looked at Chris, he goes, wow, Chris, you couldn't find a competent man to do this job, so you hired a woman, huh? And yeah, I know, right? (laughs) So that's the extreme side of these things, but it's also a picture of a lot of the subconscious bias that people walk through, and also a picture of the cost it is for Chris and our other leadership who have to like defend why they have a woman in this position. Um, And then I think the other cost of that piece is like, you know, if, if I were a man in this role, my title would be executive pastor, but because I'm not, it's executive director. And that's not a big difference. It's just one of those kind of double standards. Um, and I think last of all, the challenge for me in this position has just been my own personal growth. Uh, there's been no formal growth track for me with what I do here at Resonate um, as a female leader. So my professional growth has come from primarily outside the church and primarily egalitarian environments. Uh, the exception of this is primarily my relationship and conversations that I have with Chris and Trey Bowden at times too. Um, these conversations we have on a regular basis, we spend a lot of time together because we're two of the three full-time staff here at the church. Uh, it's been an incredible gift um, to me to grow in my faith and to grow in my leadership in serving alongside and being developed by Chris. Yeah, and so I know you've got some final comments, um, really just about your heart and what you want people to sort of be left with too. Uh, so do you want to relay some of your sort of final questions, comments? Yeah. Yeah. I don't want you to hear me and like remember all the negative things, even though I just told you a whole lot. Um, My heart is to serve the body of Christ. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 15 says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. And that is my heart. That is what I long to do. It's hard. You know, I heard a prominent woman teacher the other day say something like, my marriage to my husband has been great, but it's my marriage to the church that has been difficult. And that really resonated with me. It would be easier for me to not do this in the church. We see so many gifted women that leave the local church to go serve in parachurch ministries, becoming retreat and conference speakers or book writers or social social media like women influencers because that's where they weren't given a place within their church to do it. But I do not want that to be the case for our church. I love the local church and believe that it is the heartbeat of what we do as people who are fulfilling the Great Commission. There is There are awesome places for parachurch ministries, and I love them, but we should be the center of what is happening with the gospel going forth, and that includes elevating and giving space for everybody with their gifts and their identities and their genders and their ages to flourish and use their gifts. So we exist and resonate to equip disciple-making disciples for the mission of God, and that is what I want to give my life to. And that's the hill I want to die on, and that's why I'm here in this position. It's an intentional choice and a conviction um, that God has given me grace to do. (laughs) Thank you. There's one other thing I want to mention, and I just want to say that I have not made this conversation easy for our leadership, okay? I am by nature, he laughs because he knows how true it is, I am by nature, I am an advocate, and I am a challenger, and I have not held back from pushing and challenging our leadership team on these questions of what it means to be a complementarian church and to also seek the flourishing of all women. So whether you're or not, you are happy with where Resonate lands theologically, know that these are conversations that our leadership has not pulled back from or shut out. And we are being led by some incredibly humble and teachable men who truly seek the betterment and the glory of God through all people in the church. Chris has never once told me to like lay off or calm down about these conversations, even though he had every right to at certain points. 
Um, I have been met with patience and with honesty and offered a tremendous amount of forgiveness and grace from these leaders when I lose sight of the main thing, and I have. It still leaves me in awe at times that they want me around when I can be so difficult to work with around some of these issues. And the thing I see the most is that our elders are willing to do the hard work in order to align with how they interpret scripture. They're willing to step into conversations and make decisions that in some regard are going to feel like a lose-lose because someone will be hurt and disappointed in the outcome no matter what. So even if you don't agree with certain outcomes, and our whole leadership team is not all on the same page about all of these theological convictions, I can tell you that our elders are worth following and they are worth trusting because of the way they are humbly seeking God. And I would so much rather follow someone and submit to the authority of someone who is truly and faithfully seeking God and aligning himself under scripture than someone who just believes everything I want him to. So I am grateful to be here uh, despite all the challenges, and I am grateful for the grace that I have been offered and that this is still an ongoing conversation for us at our church. Thank you. Yeah. And yeah, we are thankful for those conversations too. Um, so um, your your contribution to the shape of this church has been profound. Um, and so we are all thankful for your role here. Thanks. Thanks, Sarah.